This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of A Dog Named Mattis, 12 Lessons for Living Courageously, Serving Selflessly, and Building Bridges from a Heroic Canine Officer, written and narrated by Sergeant Mark Tappan, available now everywhere. This is Matt Woodley with Monday Morning Preacher from PreachingToday.com, Ministry of Christianity Today. I'm very excited to be on this episode with John Tyson, who is the lead pastor of Church of the City, New York, in New York City, in Hell's Kitchen, New York City. John, it's so good to have you with us today. What's up, mate? How are you? Thank you for having me on. Appreciate yeah. it. I love that. Nobody has said, what's up, mate, to me this last week. And so... You know what? I'll, I'll do what I can. I'll throw in as many Aussie colloquialisms as I can. How about that? <laughs> Just to uh, fit all the stereotypes I have about you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually from the part of Australia that doesn't sound typically Australian. Okay. So the typical Aussie sounds a little bit more like, how's it going, mate? What, what we call ocker. I'm from Adelaide, which is known as a little more, it's the only state that wasn't founded by convicts. So it's got a distinct accent that sounds slightly British. Oh. Sometimes people say you sound slightly British or... Okay. Anyway, who knows? That's what they say. That's what they yeah. say. Yeah. Well, I'd like you to see kind of fuse the uh, British with, uh, you know, New York speak. But anyway, yeah. you're, <laughs> you're getting there. So, John, <laughs> I know you moved, to, um, you moved to the U.S. from Australia about uh, yes. 20 plus years ago. Um, yes. And now you're ministering in Hell's Kitchen neighborhood in New York City. Man, I love that. I love Hell's Kitchen. I've never been there, but I just love the name of that neighborhood. It just <laughs> yeah. sounds like a great place to be a pastor. The big question right now is you're in the middle of COVID-19 as we're recording this episode. What's going on in your ministry context now? What are you dealing with? What are you seeing? Oh, mate. I mean, I'm basically dealing with trauma at a personal mm. and regional scale. That's basically what it is. The city feels like it's on life support, going through tremendous tremendous pain. I mean, the city feels deserted. It feels depressed. It makes you want to weep, honestly. I mean, mm. if, to see New York at its best and then to see it like this is very heartbreaking. And then to see so many people with complete and utter disorientation, you know, so much uncertainty about jobs, wow. the future, the future of the city. Yeah. So it's really a very, very, uh, it's a very trying time culturally right now. Wow. I think of the book of Lamentations, where he's describing how lonely the city sits, you know, this beautiful city that's been devastated and just ripped yeah. apart. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I read that. I read that was in the lectionary a, couple, yes. a little while back. And I read that and I was like, that's what it feels like right outside my door. It's, it's heavy, man. I mean, I'm an optimist by nature, you know. Yeah. Um, one of my spiritual gifts is faith. So, I, you know, I'm a believer mm. and I believe the big things. But... I don't want to spiritually bypass this, man. We're going to sit, we've got to process sort of the, the shared grief, the, the loss of so many good plans. When we we're just, they're not going to happen. They're not going to be realized. So yeah, part of the pastoring work, I think, is helping people navigate that with biblical hope. It's like, how do you grieve, but not as those without hope? How do you do that? And I think that's the art that we're learning at, at the moment. So, And that, that shows up in preaching for sure. How to find that tone that walks the thread between acknowledging pain and loss, but also providing biblical perspective and hope. It's, it's, it's an art form right now. Not one that I'm, I've mastered, but one I'm, I'm learning, learning yeah. in with a very, very high curve right now. 
Yeah, what do you think is the biggest lesson you're learning right now in terms of preaching, how to adapt your preaching to this situation? I mean, just sort of on a street level. Oh, man. I mean, pe- people need voices. Being a stable voice that people can trust. I think that's what I'm like, uh, you know, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, they follow me. There's, there's something about a shepherd's voice, a stable voice of leadership and care that I think people look to, not to, not to wave a wand over and fix everything, not to throw out little quips that, you know, sound good in a previous era, but to just say, thank you for being a consistent voice. Mm. You know, so I think that that's what I'm learning to be a consistent voice of leadership and reality and hope and help our community navigate this experience. So yeah. to, to me, I, I don't have a teaching gift. Nobody who knows me says John's a good teacher. I have a gift of exhortation that's talked about in Romans 12. So mm-hmm. to come alongside and to exhort through the word. So yeah, I'm, I'm trying to now to have a definitely a more pastoral tone and to, to live in reality and also to, yeah, it's basically the art of rejoicing with those who are rejoicing and weeping with those who are weeping. Sometimes yeah. not even in the same sermon, sometimes in the same point of the sermon. You know, so it yeah. is definitely, it's challenging. Yeah, I love that though, consistent voice of trust that people can look mm-hmm. to for hope. John, I know you've written, you've been preaching and teaching a lot lately on revival. They seem like an odd time to talk about revival, but I would imagine there's a connection to what you're going through, which we'll get to later on in this mm-hmm. podcast. But let me just start on a personal level for you. What, mm-hmm. what happened in your life where revival just became such a prominent passion and then theme in your teaching and pastoral ministry? I sort of came to Christ in a mini revival. It was really an extraordinary outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it it touched whole swaths of my relational circles. And it just, it literally felt like a wave that people Mm. got caught in. And this is in, uh, gosh, 94, 95. And uh, it was in a church in Australia called Paradise Assemblies of God. And I, I was so resistant to it at first. I mean, but I just was overwhelmed by the power and presence of God. I mean, it's, it's one thing to believe in God. It's another thing for God to be in the room overcoming you with his presence. Mm. And that, that's what it was. I mean, I was just overwhelmed with the manifest presence of God. And it took me several years to realize that was not normal Christianity, you right. know, and so I've, I've gone back and forth on this. I mean, I've, I've gone from, was this just like a stage in my faith? Was this sort of like a honeymoon period? Is sort of what I experienced biblical Christianity. I mean, how do you match, how do you match the full expression of the counsel of God? Yeah, the book of Lamentations, the imprecatory Psalms, all of these challenges. But I guess my conclusion would be, we have to look back at all of those things through the light of the resurrection and the sending of the spirit, not as if Jesus never came. So, yeah, I, I basically came to Christ in, in a genuine move of God and I, I, something got in my spirit. I think the second book I ever read as a Christian was Why Revival Tarries by Leonard Ravenhill. Mm. And it was, it was Lewis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, the first book I found on theology, and, which was dry, but I just I, I had such a hunger. I just plowed wow. through, plowed through it. Many sections completely incomprehensible. And, but then this book on revival, I just had a heart for prayer and I read biographies and accounts of revival. And I read the Bible primarily where God seemed to always be inviting his backsliding people into an invitation of renewal. Mm. And it, it, it seemed so biblical to me, no controversy, so biblical. 
so yeah, I've just sort of tracked with it. And over the years, it's, it's, it's always been the, the fire in my spirit, but in different times it's had various levels of prominence, you know, but it's, it's the last couple of years, it's just come back full tilt. I've just had sensed an urgency from God around this. And I took my family on a tour of uh, many of the great revival sites in the world that just reignited this passion in me. And it's basically a desperation for more of God. People say, like, why are you interested in revival? I'm like, because I'm interested in more of God. Hmm. That's, that's it. It's hmm. a hunger for God. It's not a fascination with statistics or conversions or even cultural change. It's like, I want to, the God I love and have read about, I want to close the gap between what he promises and what I experience. What, what does revival do to the problems you see in Hell's Kitchen? People that are not believers, what, how does revival spill over? Well, you know, revival, I think, well, it, so it converts people's hearts. You know, basically the culture of your heart becomes the culture that you create. Van Til said, religion, culture is religion externalized. And so when God renews a heart, it just cares about different things. It wants different things. It has different habits, practices, beliefs, builds a different kind of culture. When that happens at scale, you get large societal shift. You know, you, you look at the, the outpourings of the Holy Spirit, you know, the, the, the Welsh ones, very, very uh, famous for the, the decline in uh, what happened in, in regards to crime and conversions. Uh, I think mm. Finney in Rochester may be the most extraordinary account yeah. of uh, the conversion of a society. Basically, crime disappeared. Mm. And the effects of it, the effects of it on society were felt for 40 years afterwards. And so revival is that to me, the root of most of the justice and systemic change we long long for would be accelerated through an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. To me, getting to the root of the evil of the human heart and seeing that transform. When you read some of these accounts, uh, you you say, well, well, how does that happen? It's like, I, I read this one account in the Hebrides revival where one man said, Imagine, you know, when you do something wrong and you, you know you violated your conscience. He said, in revival, it felt like every sin he'd ever committed was present at once and all of its ensuing guilt. Oh, wow. So just the collapsing of 10,000 sins, the weight of all of that sin. Sins when he was a child that he'd forgotten about, all present in a moment. And that overwhelming hatred of sin that the feeling of the guilt of sin, uh, it makes people hate sin. And yeah. so when, when they experience the wonder of the cross, they, they lose their appetite for those former things. So that's mm-hmm. what produces much of the reformation. They want different things now because yeah. they have not, not sort of a, a sophomoric or a cultural understanding of sin, but a deep, deep hatred of it, and a desire to build a different world. So it has to, those converted hearts as they go about shaping and making culture, build different things. You know? Yeah. So it sounds like it in revival, it heightens both the, um, you know, when Paul talks about in Romans, you know, our sin is great, but his grace is greater, you know, it sounds like it, it heightens the sin, but then it even more heightens, hyper heightens the, the sense of the, the power of the cross to forgive and to wash us clean. Yeah. Yeah. So getting back, I mean, you, I'm sure you've heard the stories in the Welsh revival where the, the, the miners, the miners had to retrain their donkeys because they used to swear at them so much and their language improved and the donkeys couldn't respond to the commands. And, um, but the great hymn of the Welsh revival, here is love vast as the ocean. Oh, wow. You know, that great hymn from the Welsh revival. It was like the washing of the love of God over a whole nation. Extraordinary. 
That's beautiful. Well, let's yeah. talk about specifically preaching and revival. Um, yes. So what does preaching have to do with revival? What's, what's the interplay there? You know, why does some preaching lead and sustain revival and some doesn't, you know, or maybe we don't know that, but what, what's the part, what part does preaching play in revival? If I, what, what I've studied in the last year, it's the combination of preaching and prayer. Hmm. It's the combination of those two things. Yeah. We have, we have a glut right now of world-class preaching. I mean, I mean like every great Bible expositor, you know, theological journals, articles, podcasts, movies, Bible software. We are the most theologically competent, enriched generation mm. that's ever lived. And all that's happened with all of our content is the greatest decline in U.S. history in the church on our watch. Yeah. Wow. So, so it's not content for its own sake. So yeah. many of the churches you were like, if you now I'll say this, often good preaching does lead to church growth. There's something about that. So a local church, you know, the, let me define New York City right now. Not right now, in its previous COVID, uh, prior yeah. to COVID. New York is a city filled with buildings where people don't preach the word of God that are empty and churches that preach the word of God staggering to find space to keep up with the growth. Huh. Wow. So there is something to the preach word of God, but I, I tell you, it is the, the preaching plus prayer hmm. that seems to be the factor in spiritual awakening. It is that intercessory, strategic, aligned prayer that accompanies the word of God that activates it. Hmm. So Finney, Finney said, for example, after he described himself as being filled with the Holy Spirit, he said, I, upon preaching the simple gospel, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He said, I could not have cut them down faster if I had a sword in my hand than a, a few simple phrases from God's word empowered by the spirit. People mm -hmm. were falling on their faces. And much of ministry, as much of Finney's ministry was powered by Father Nash and Abel Clary, people who lived lives yeah. of deep, deep secret intercession. So mm -hmm. to me, it's the combination of the two. So if you get prayer, a praying culture, but without the preaching of the word of God, stuff happens. But if you get the word of God without prayer, stuff happens. But when they come together, it's like a catalytic, catalytic sort of push between the two. So by way of experiment, I mean, I felt like I had really just rediscovered this this year. And I consciously, if I resolved, if I spend 10 hours on sermon prep, I'll spend 10 hours on prayer for this sermon. I will give equal time to prayer and the word. And for those who are part of our church, they would say right before COVID broke in, something was breaking out in our church. We were mm. seeing altars filled with people with tears, repenting of their sin. Wow. Like never, like never before preaching. The content was no different, no huh. different on the content, yeah. but just a team of people praying, Holy spirit, anoint this word. And you'd be amazed at how many world-class preachers have very little prayer behind the word. Wow. That so I think there's a, there's a combination between the two things. That's really sobering and challenging at the same time. Do you have a team of people that pray for you regularly? Yes. Yeah, I, I do. I just found out. So we, we were doing five, five services on Sundays. I was preaching all five. Yeah. And I just found out I had five hours of prayer for my five hours of preaching. And I had prayer teams praying the entire time I was preaching every Sunday. I mean, yeah. that's been the track record of our church. Wow. So, We've, we've, we've tried to take this really seriously 
but but we were just I, so I basically did another revival tour earlier this year, and I went up and I studied Edwards and what happened with Edwards. Went all around uh, Massachusetts, went to where he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, and tried to figure out why that was such, such a catalytic sermon. Then I went to Rochester, where Finney preached and saw an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and a bunch of other places. Yeah. And I came back from that so convicted, prayerlessness. I mean, I wow. was under the fear yeah. of God. So I, I, I changed. And our church does four hours of prayer a day. We have four hours of prayer meetings a day in our church. We are not a prayerless church. But I came back going, I know nothing of prayer and preaching and changed oh. that radically. And that was just bearing some really beautiful fruit. So, so let, me, let me just get really practical because so I'm really interested in this. And this is really fascinating. It's good for me personally, too. So when you do your sermon prep, so you're doing all the exegesis and you're doing all that kind of stuff. I mean, that great mm -hmm. stuff. And so you're praying, you like you walking and praying for the sermon. Are you praying for people that are going to hear this sermon? What does your prayer for the sermon look like? Well, number one, it's, it's important to say I'm, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will anoint this passage with hmm. power, that it would be real. I mean, I, I don't know if you grew up in a, a Christian home or tradition, but you know how on the last night of camp, you don't know how to explain it of Christian youth camp. You don't know how to explain it, but God would just show up. It would be yeah. 630 and you'd be eating dinner and you'd say two hours from now, everyone will be at the front weeping. Yeah. And you don't know how that worked. It just happened. Yeah. And the presence of God would just move into a meeting, maybe like yeah. a cloud, not tangibly, but like a sense of his presence would appear right. and everybody would change. I'm praying for that. That's mm. what I'm praying for. I don't know how this works. But I know that in the book of Acts, when they heard your word, they were cut to the heart. Yeah. When I read accounts in the book of Nehemiah, revival under Nehemiah, the people wept when the word of God was led. Your word leads to a, an encounter with your word leads to an mm. encounter with you. So I'm praying, anoint it with power. I'm praying for people. I'm praying for the lost. Uh, I'm praying specifically for individuals in our congregation. I'm praying for the city as a whole. I'm declaring from a Pentecostal background. So, I'm on top of my roof, holding a, the passage open, declaring it over the city to the principalities, yeah. Yeah. not to the principalities, but in the, in the Ephesians three sets, the church is the manifold wisdom of God on display. Yeah. So I'll be like, I display the counsel of God over the city of New York. I declare over the city, the truth of this word. This word is real. It has power. It will narrate the future of the city. It has a central place. It doesn't belong on the fringe, but at the center, I proclaim this. I'm doing a bunch of that stuff. That's, that's awesome. I really love that. Little known fact, folks, uh, John used to be a butcher, right? I would imagine that gives you an inside track on preaching on the book of Leviticus, maybe? Yeah, I mean, there's some, there's some key scenes in Leviticus. Particularly, it says if, you, if it's the place where you're to bring your tithe is too far, then basically kill, have, have fatty meats and sweet drinks and celebrate before God. <laughs> That was more like the context of my, my I life. see. Yeah. I brought that up because you tell this great story in your book, uh, The Burden is Light. You tell this great story about meeting God in a freezer surrounded by animal carcasses, you know? And I, yes. That's just a great story about how God speaks to and uses and meets ordinary people in ordinary places, you know? <clears throat> yes. Uh, so that was, that was a powerful story. I, I got a question for you about, so COVID-19 yeah. revival. Uh, 
you know, you're in the, you're in the eye of the storm. Um, what do you see moving forward? And sort of assuming this, we're going to live in a post pandemic world, which I think we will eventually. I mean, what do you see? Do you think this is going to make people more or less open to revival? What, what are you sensing in the Lord about what's going to happen and what we need to do post COVID-19? Well, I mean, the, the question I, I, I would just ask in response is, I feel like this, maybe this is our last shot. This is the last real opportunity in the Western church for God to get our attention. Like, like what else, mate? What, what, what else? Mm. What else will wake us up? You know, the gospel's thriving. Um, it's thriving basically all over the world, except in the West, you know, the fastest growing church mm. in the world right now in Iran, they say total. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the supernatural manifestations, Jesus appearing in, in people's homes, directly leading people to Christ in Iran. I mean, it's just the most breathtaking. It makes the book of Acts seem like a warm up. Yeah. You know, what's happening, what's happening in the Chinese church, Central America, Africa. I mean, God is moving around the world, except the West. You know, the church normally does pretty well in crisis. It, it normally rallies and does well. Yeah. Um, I think, Someone said this to me. They said, unless we seek God in radically different ways, the only thing we'll do on our watch as Christian leaders is manage the decline of the Western church. Wow. And I feel like it's our last opportunity to change our hearts and position ourselves before God to say, okay, you have our attention, Lord. Hmm. We will now come back to our first love. That The American church in many ways is the, is the Revelation 2 church. We've tested those who claim to be apostles, but they're not. We work hard. We've resisted the pressures of the culture in many ways, except we just don't do what we did at first, which is love you. And uh, Jesus wants a church that loves him first. And what does he say in that book? He says, if you don't come back, I'm going to remove, I'm going to remove your influence, maybe even remove your presence. And I think this is, you know, I mean, I say this, I, I submit this so humbly, Yeah. but it's like, I feel like if God doesn't get the church's attention, what, what else is there? What, what else is it going to take for us to pray and to turn back to God with all of our hearts and suspend programmatic business as usual? This mm. is it, mate. So yeah. I sense it's a great turning. I'm very encouraged by the amount of churches that immediately pivoted to online prayer and Zoom prayer meetings. And I feel like the prayer yeah. culture of many churches has accelerated. But will we get fatigue when the adrenaline of crisis wears off? And will this be a turning of our hearts? Yeah. And will, will we put the presence of God back at the center of the church? That's, that's what I think the moment is about. Yeah, man, those are awesome questions to ponder and pray yeah. about, you know, yeah. and uh, light a fire in us. That's really yeah. good. John. You know, you're in the eye of the storm and you're, you're seeing it probably more than a lot of us are. I mean, just any last words of advice or you said you have the gift of exhortation. If you want to exhort us today. Yeah, whatever, whatever last words. Oh, you know, I mean, it would simply be God, God wants you, he wants you for himself. He wants you back. He wants your attention. He wants your heart. And he wants to be at the center of the church, not just a part of the church. And yeah. I think God is disrupting church as normal. And look, I'm not like a, I love Sundays. I'm not like a, Sundays are a plague and all they do is create consumers. Yeah. I love Sundays. Sunday is a mm. gift. It's a biblical command to gather together. But what I love more than Sundays is Jesus in every moment of our life mm. at the center 
And I think that's what God's calling us back to is just, but he's trying to get us, get our attention. So I would say to people, it's not a time to primarily just serve your neighbors. I'm sorry. I'm I'm now going off a tangent, but I'll say this. I I have been a little concerned by the amount of people who, who are saying, what should the church do and not what does God want from us? Mm. And there's been such Mm. a mission man response centered focus, obviously important. But to actually ask the question, God, what are you trying to do in me and in our church through this yeah. is a better question. Hmm. And um, so, yeah, don't come through the corona through the coronavirus crisis without more of him, without yeah. more of him, more love for him, more of his word, more of right. his presence. So guard your rhythms. Be very careful about formation. Don't develop habits now that will corrupt your formation in a post-coronavirus world. Mm. Have boundaries, you know. Resist pornography and violence in media like never before when you're prone to become numb to it. Be sensitive and yet create space to meditate, to create space to think on God's word and to think deeply. And uh, first things, man, first thing. John, you've really stirred my heart. This has been really good. I mean, just personally, it's not only a great podcast episode, but you've really stirred my heart personally Mm -hmm. to just to lean more into just being with the Lord um, and yeah. spending more time in prayer in my preaching and lingering with yeah. the Lord. And I yeah. love that image of holding the word. I'm, we're, I'm not a Pentecostal. I'm an Anglican, but we, we, we're full of the Holy Spirit. We, you know, let, so. me, yeah, let me tell you, there was, I mean, Wesley was a Pentecostal by practice. Yeah, he was. He was. And, and we, we are wide open to the presence of the Holy Spirit. But I love yes. that holding the Bible text over our people and over the city. I, I love that. What yeah. a great image. Yeah. And asking that's the biblical. Oh. That's not Pentecostal. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. You've given us some great things to think about, not only to think about, but to stir our hearts and light a fire in our hearts. So I'm going to be praying for you and your family this week. Really keep you well, in my you, prayers. Man. And yes, um, we just, we love the work that you're doing. So thank you so much, John, for being with us. No worries. No worries, mate. Yeah. Much grace and peace to everybody listening to this. And yeah, yeah. just pray that, pray that we come through this with, Awake hearts. Let me just say a quick prayer for you. You know, okay, thanks, mate. Yeah. Uh, Lord Jesus, I just pray for this dear brother. Just continue to stir his heart, continue to awaken his family, continue to awaken his church community and his city and his neighborhood, and continue to, uh, to just meet with them in powerful ways, even though they're not meeting together right now. So pray for your protection over them and the work of the Spirit through them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's so great. Uh, This is Matt Woodley with uh, Monday Morning Preacher. It's great to have John Tyson with us. Hope you can join us for our next episode.